Why don't you have a seat, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We've been walking through these verses the last two weeks. This is the third week. Because Jesus gives us the priority commandment to love God with all our heart. That was week one. All our soul. That was last week. And this week, all of our mind. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the great, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So this Pharisee, an expert in the law, comes to Jesus and he's going to test Jesus. Now he wanted to know the answer to the question. The way he's testing Jesus is, are you going to give the same kind of answer that our group would give. And so Jesus says the priority commandment, the commandment that the rest of the law is built on, that the rest of the law hangs from, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your commandment. And then he gives a second one, to love your neighbor as yourself. So we've talked about two weeks ago, loving God with all your heart, which in the scripture represents all of who you are, your will, your passion. Last week we talked about loving God with your soul. And what we saw is you have a soul, You are to love God with your soul, so take care of it. And today, we're coming around just one simple idea. Your mind was made to love God, so engage it. Your mind was made to love God, so engage it. See, God created your mind, which means that you have the capacity for brilliance. Turn to the person on your right and say, I knew it. I knew it. Husbands, this is your moment. Tell your wife what you've been trying to tell her all these years, that you are brilliant. But God did make your mind, and he made you brilliant. And you are brilliant at something. Now, that brilliance plays out itself in a lot of different ways. Some of us are brilliant at math, and by us, I mean not me. Some of us are brilliant at math, and you can look at an equation that has more letters in it than numbers, and it doesn't matter to you, you can solve it. Some of you are brilliant at art, and you go to the museum. Amanda and I went to the Fine Arts Museum here in town uh, probably last spring, and I went there, and I was like, these are pretty. I mean, I I paid a lot of money to go, yeah, that's pretty, right? Because I don't get it. But some of you look at art, and you get it. You get the heart of the artist. And not only do you get the heart of the artist, some of you are so brilliant that you can actually pull it off. Maybe not fine arts, you know, Houston Museum, but something a little bit less than that. You're brilliant at that. Some of you are brilliant at mechanical stuff. You can take things apart and you can put them back together because God made your mind brilliant in that way. Some of you are brilliant leaders. Some of you are brilliant with words. And when you write emails, people actually respond to them and read them, you know. But we all have a capacity for brilliance because God is the one who made our minds. Now, I know we're we're maybe split into two camps this morning when we're talking about brilliance. Um, Some of us don't believe it, and some of us believe it too easily. (laughs) Some of us are insecure about it, and some of us are too secure about it. But I want to prove to you that you are brilliant. You're not overly brilliant, but your mind was created for brilliance, and you have that capacity. So I want to play some songs for you. We're going to do a little test, a little music test. And so I'm going to play a song, the beginning of the song, and when you recognize the song and can place 
who sang it, I want you to boldly lift up your hand in the air. Okay, the first service, they didn't get this. I don't know what their problem was. They're not any fun. Um, So when you get it, raise your hand. This is not a trick. I'm not going to condemn everybody for knowing these songs at the end. Preachers would do that, but not me, right? So when you recognize the song and who sang it, just throw your hand up in the air. Don't shout it out because, again, it's a test and no cheating. Um, And and this is is all fun, okay? So we're, we're having fun here. So if you're a super serious person... Um, long list of churches out in the lobby for you to go to next week. All right, ready? Remember, when you recognize the song, hand in the air. So it's Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. That's right. dry. I was about 13 years old. A little, little lady called me on the phone, broke up with me. I immediately went to Water Runs Dry by Boys to Men. I'm telling you, it's my jam. My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion from the Titanic soundtrack. And listen, if you, you act like you don't like this song, you are a liar. This is for all you sophisticated people, just to let everybody know we're classy. Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. That's how I fall asleep every night. I'm just kidding. See, what's unbelievable is I'm guessing that none of those songs are in your regular playlist. Now, you maybe have them on your iPod or your iPhone. Nobody owns an iPod anymore. But you have them somewhere. You own them. They're on some CD or some record somewhere. But I doubt that you've listened to those songs in the last week on purpose. And yet, within just a few measures of the song, you immediately recognize what it was. And not just recognize what it was, but who sang it. And you probably remember back to a time where that song was important to you or you were listening to that song a lot. So you can remember a certain stretch of drive when that song comes on, you remember driving your car when you were 16 or when you, know, you were 20 or in what part of town, you remember what was going on. That song triggers all of that in your mind because you have the capacity for brilliance because God created your mind. And what we're gonna see in the scripture is that your mind was made for a purpose. That brilliance is made for a purpose, to love God. But many of us think that 
What God wants from us is just our soul. And if not just our soul, then our heart. The last thing that we think God would want from us is our mind. But what we're going to see from the scripture is when he reveals himself to you, he usually does it first to your mind. And if your mind is not engaged, many of us are missing revelation from God. Words from God, direction from God. Because our minds are not engaged. And, our, and the stakes are high. Romans chapter 8, it says that the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning set on things that are apart from God, that are against God, the mind that is set on flesh leads to death. But the mind that is set on the spirit leads to life and peace. Then it says in the next verse that a mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. I'm guessing that if you're here this morning, you've bothered to come to church, you are not intentionally hostile towards God. But if your mind is set on things that are apart from God and against God, you are hostile to God. So what we do with our minds, with all of their capabilities and possibilities, matters. Your mind was made to love God, so engage it. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to show you just how committed God is to engaging your mind. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke, who was a doctor, um, is referring in this letter, this book that he's writing called Acts, to the first book that he wrote, which is called the Gospel of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, the physician Luke gives an orderly account of Jesus' life. In Acts, he's giving an orderly account of what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. Verse 3, he, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's saying that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now that's a crescendo moment. You kind of, uh, if you can remember with me, like all the Jesus movies or the Jesus TV shows that you've seen over time, uh, how does it work? Uh, It's kind of long in the beginning, and then it gets to Jesus' last week there in Jerusalem, and everything starts speeding up. You can literally feel the crescendo in those movies or television shows. And everything that happens in that last week starts happening very quickly. Jesus is arrested, uh, he's tried, he's beaten, and he's crucified. And then what happens? Three days later, he's raised from the dead. That's a pinnacle moment. That's a crescendo moment. It's the climax of everything that is happening. Now, in those Jesus movies and television shows, what happens? There's a brief little summary, a few sentences, a few paragraphs, and then we see Jesus gathered on a mountain with his disciples, and he ascends up into heaven. But it's very quick between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. Like it just all happened together. But what does the scripture say? It says, after this crescendo moment, this pinnacle moment of Jesus triumphing, triumphing, being triumphant over death, he spends 40 days. He sticks around for 40 more days. To what? To speak or teach about the kingdom of God. If Jesus just wanted to inspire us, then he would have just immediately resurrected, made a few appearances, and then ascended. But he wants to do more than just inspire you. He wants to teach you. He's committed to engaging your mind because he sticks around for 40 more days, making appearances and teaching about the kingdom 
of God. Now it says that he's making these appearances and speaking to the apostles. Before they were apostles, they were known as disciples. And Jesus went around and handpicked uh, those 12. But we know Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. We see a few concentric circles around Jesus. And Jesus' followers were uh, all kinds of different people. There were some religious people. There were some political people. There were some sinners. There were women. Uh, there were professionals. There were uh, stay-at-home moms. There, there were all kinds of different people who considered themselves disciples of Jesus. And Jesus was not the first teacher to have disciples. Even John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, he had disciples of his own. But Jesus calls these disciples. And when you decided to be a disciple, what you were saying is, I believe in this teacher so much that I'm going to dedicate my life to learn from them. The 12 disciples, they were so dedicated that they actually left their homes for a large portion of time to follow Jesus around. And what they were learning as disciples, as students of Jesus, was more than just knowledge. It was more than just a transfer of knowledge. They were learning not only what Jesus knew, but how Jesus acted. They were learning the way of Jesus, not just the knowledge of Jesus. I mean, do you think of yourself as a student of Jesus? I'm guessing most of us don't. In fact, we start using those words like teacher and student. Most of us are immediately checking out. Right? Because we've had some experience in our lives where being a student was less than positive. Like I remember when I was in college, I had this philosophy of religion class, super exciting. And it was at eight o'clock in the morning and I'm kind of a night owl. And so I stay up late and then I would go to my eight o'clock class and the book was, you know, it was very, very thick and I had only pretended to read it. And then the teacher, great guy, not super dynamic. And so pretty much every class period, I fell asleep. Now, not a big deal. People fall asleep in classes all the time. People are going to sleep here, you know, before I'm finished and that's fine. But if you're going to fall asleep in places, you need to have the courtesy to sit in the back. I was, you know, not as smart. And so I sit on the second row and would fall asleep. The room wasn't even that big. Second row, I would fall asleep. And uh, I got a good grade in the class for all of you who are worried about stewardship. You know, I got a good grade. (laughs) But this fall, this fall, I got invited to be in this room with some other pastors and professors. And there that professor was, that teacher. It's a small room, so I'm going to have to meet him. You know, it's not like I can meet the other six people in the room, but ignore the seventh person, you know. And so I'm going to have to meet him. And I start praying, God, please let me be a forgettable person. You know, please let him just have no memory of me. Uh, I was really nervous that he was going to, I was going to introduce myself and he was going to go, I remember you. And I already had a speech prepared. You know, like the prodigal son, when he comes home, he's already got a speech prepared. I had a speech prepared. I'm sorry. I'm a terrible person. I was so immature. I'm still immature. I don't know what's the matter with me. I honor you. I honor you. I'm broken on the inside. You know, I didn't know what to say, but I wanted to just tell him, like, I'm an idiot. And I know I'm an idiot, you know, and I was an idiot then. Uh, But thankfully, I went to shake his hand and I said, my name is Curtis Jones. And uh, he introduced himself and uh, he had no idea who I was. And and I didn't tell him, you know, so. uh, (laughs) So when we start thinking about students and being students, the truth is most of us aren't interested in that because most of us just endured our education. We were in it for the goal, not the journey. Now, there are a few of you who like being educated. You like going to class. That's what God made you brilliant at. And praise God for you. But I'm guessing for most of us, our education was just something we endured, just something that we got through. So now we're talking about being students of Jesus, and we, we take on that. Oh, this is something I have to endure. He's going to try to teach me things. And inherent in the teaching is a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of excitement. 
But being a student of Jesus is more than that. We're not just transferring information from Jesus' mind to our mind. It's learning his way. And listen, we see in the the Gospels, when we kind of zoom out, we see Jesus' teaching strategy. There was a transfer of knowledge. He did teach the facts of the kingdom of God. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He goes on top of a mountain. He sits down. He begins to teach about the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. If any of you hates your brother, you've already committed murder. He teaches the facts about the kingdom of God. But then we see in in Matthew chapter 9, just a few short chapters later, he demonstrates the kingdom of God as he lives. Matthew chapter 9, he's walking through a town. He sees a tax collector named Levi. And in the middle of this man taking advantage of people, Jesus says to him, I want you to follow me. Later in that chapter, he sees a young girl. He's called to a house of a young girl who has just passed away. The father, mother, and the family are distraught. Jesus raises her from the dead by the power of God. He heals a woman who's had a medical condition for years and years and years. Not only did he teach the facts about the kingdom, he demonstrated what it was like to live in the kingdom. And then Matthew chapter 10, then he takes those disciples, those students, and he sends them out. He says, you know the facts... You've seen me live it, now you go and do it. This is how Jesus makes disciples. Jesus does not make disciples by Jesus being on a stage and just lecturing you. Jesus does not wake you up in the morning with a um, syllabus of what we're going to learn today. There are facts that he wants you to know, but he is going to demonstrate for you what it is like to live in the kingdom of God, and then he is going to send you out to live in the kingdom of God. So you think about, maybe you're going to work tomorrow. I know it's holiday, maybe you get off, bless you, right? But many are going to work tomorrow. What does it mean to be a student of Jesus at work? Whether your work is an office or a construction site or your home, what does it mean to be a student of Jesus in that place? Will you go to that place with the facts of the kingdom? Facts like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So you know that when you come into your office You are bringing the kingdom of God with you. And the rest of the world plays by the rules of the world, but you play by the rules of the kingdom of God. You're bringing that fact, those facts. You're bringing that information, that knowledge into your workplace. But then you're also demonstrating the kingdom of God there. If you, you know, how do I demonstrate the kingdom of God at my office or on my work site or in my home as I raise my children? Well, just ask yourself, how would Jesus do your job? If Jesus went to your job instead of you tomorrow, with the same goals and deadlines and to-do list, how would he do it? Would Jesus actually try to accomplish what is in front of him, or would he just be hanging out with everybody and not accomplishing anything? How would he speak to those who are in authority over him at that place? How would he interact with those he works next to? Who would he go to lunch with? What kinds of things would he be thinking as he's sitting at his desk or doing his job. That's what it means to be a student of Jesus at the place that you work. And then we know what Jesus would be doing. He would be looking around your office, your construction site, and he would be asking himself, who's the next disciple in this place? Who's the person I'm gonna pour my life into and train up and raise up to be a follower of Jesus so that I can send out just like I've been sent out? That's what it means to be a student of Jesus. It's not just information transfer, 
It's an engagement of your mind. It seems so simple that I probably shouldn't say it or don't need to say it, but I'm going to anyway. But it's why the word of God is so important. The scripture. You can't be a student of Jesus if you are not a student of God's word because God prioritizes his word. He has since the beginning. You go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter one. How does God create all of this that we're living into? By his word. God calls Abraham, central figure of the Old Testament. How does he do it? By his word. God calls Moses, another central figure in the Old Testament. How does he do it? He speaks by his word through the burning bush to Moses. God is gonna give the law to the people of God, to Israel. What does he do? He brings Moses on top of a mountain and he speaks to Moses the way a man speaks to a friend. You have the prophets in the Old Testament. What do they do? They deliver the word of God to the people of God. You have Jesus in John chapter one. How is he referred to? But as the word of God. You have Jesus looking to the Old Testament, affirming that it is the word of God. You have the New Testament affirming itself that it is the word of God. And a commitment to God without a commitment to God's word is not a commitment to God. A commitment to God without a commitment to God's word is just you trying to be a better person. A commitment to God without a commitment to God's word is just you trying to guess what God wants from you. And what will make you approved in God's eyes. But if you are a student of Jesus, you are a student of his word which means you need to read it, which means you need to study it, which means you need to study its context, which means you need to dive into it and understand things that you don't understand, which means you need to pray as you're reading it, which means you need to read and get insight from others who have gone on before you, who've understood some of the mysteries that we find in the scripture. Because a commitment to God without a commitment to his word is, well, it's not a commitment that will last. Because we are students of Jesus. We are students of his word and he is engaging our mind. And the great thing, as we engage our minds to love God, something supernatural happens. So I want you, I want you to see this, Romans chapter 12. I wanna show you that more is happening here than just a transfer of spiritual information. Romans chapter 12 is very popular, iconic verse about the mind in the scripture. It says this in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there are two key words In this verse, verse two, the first one is conformed and the second one is transformed. Now conform is an external change. It means that you have put on something on the outside that does not really reflect what is on the inside. Like I'm gonna be honest with you, I am terrible at snorkeling. This terrible, terrible at about, I didn't know I was terrible at it until Amanda and I uh, we're married. We went on our honeymoon to a beach type place and uh, she loved to snorkel. She had done that before. So we go down to the beach. They got the little shack there and we rent the equipment and, and they give me the goggles and the, the snorkel and the fins. And so I put them on right there. I look up, Amanda's walking to the beach with her fins in her hands. And then she puts them on, you know, and here I am walking through the sand, you know, <laughs> rookie. Finally get in there. She jumps in, starts swimming to, towards the reef thing. And uh, she's like a dolphin, man. Just a beautiful newlywed dolphin just in the, 
deal. And, and then I get in. And I'm like a squirrel in the water. <laughs> now, I can swim. Like, I can swim. I grew up swimming. I did swim lessons through the Red Cross. I got a card and everything. But it's like I put the goggles on, and it's fogging up, and I don't know how to breathe through a tube. And, and the fins, man, the fins are really throwing me off because instead of helping me swim, they're actually drowning me. And I'm, they're, they're bringing me towards the bottom, and it's terrible. And she sees what's happening. She comes back, and my newlywed wife has to come over to me a great distance and say, are you okay? Now, that's like a macho moment that I totally missed, you know? A macho moment I totally missed. I blew it. And so for all these years now, she tells people, you know, Curtis, he's not a strong swimmer. I mean, it's so embarrassing. It's true, but it's embarrassing. So last year, last year, it's our 10th anniversary. 10th anniversary. We made it. We're practically done. 10, 10 years. We made it. It's awesome. We're going on a, a beach vacation to celebrate. And we're going to snorkel. And, man, I'm going to get it right. Now, it's been 10 years of Curtis, not a strong swimmer, and her telling the story at parties. And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show her. I'm going to show her. I'm going to do this. We get on a boat. The boat's going to take us to a snorkel place. So I'm ready, man. I got them on. I got the fins on. I got the whole thing. I'm going to do that thing, lean back thing, you know. Not, I don't need to, but I'm just going to because that's, that's what people do. They, they stop the boat. It's time to jump in. I'm jump in. Almost drowned. <laughs> I'm terrible. Terrible. So, if you ever see me in fins with a snorkel and a mask, you will know that I'm conforming to somebody else. I'm putting on an exterior that doesn't have any connection to me. Because I am not a good swimmer, apparently. And what the scripture is telling us here is that conforming... Don't conform to the pattern of this world, Romans chapter 12. Means you have something going on inside of you that's different than everybody else at your work. So when everyone else starts walking down this one path, you have to remember, I shouldn't be conformed to that path. Meaning I shouldn't put on their exterior because theirs is an exterior and an interior. But mine would just be an exterior because there's an interior of the Spirit of God living in me. And that's different. And your outside should match your inside, which is what the word transformation means. It means that something has happened on the inside. A change has happened, and now that change is evident on the outside. We see this when Jesus goes up on top of the mountain. He takes three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go up on top of the mountain. They get up there, and the disciples' minds are blown. Because Jesus, they've been with him now for a long time. They've seen him. He lived in Galilee where they lived. and They've seen him do some really cool stuff. But they, they kind of know who he is. They, they picture him. But he gets up on top of that mountain. And he starts radiating the glory of God. It's like he had been confined by all that humanity. And he said, I, I need a break. I need a break. And for this one moment, I'm going to take off my humanity. And I'm just going to be my divinity. And I'm just going to be the holy son of God. And he's radiating the glory of God. And we call it the transfiguration because who Jesus really was, was being seen. That's what transformation is. And how are we transformed? Because listen, some of us are stuck in the treadmill of just conforming. You just think that's just the sum total of what it means to be a Christian is there's a, a set of rules and guidelines and your job is to just wrap those rules and guidelines around you. 
And many people think that this is the sum total of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I got my list of rules, my do's and don'ts, what will make me improve, and I'm just going to wrap it around me. But that's not what God is asking from you. He wants to change you from the inside out. In fact, he's not honored if your outside is not connected to your inside. And so if you're not a believer today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not there yet, listen, be free. Be free. Don't worry about pretending like uh, being like everybody else in this room. God's not honored by that. He doesn't care by that. He's not fooled by that. So just be you. He wants transformation, change to come. And how does that change come? Verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. You've been given a new mind. I want you to turn a few pages to your right to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, literally just probably three or four pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this, the natural person, that means just the way you and I were born, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Have you ever tried to, to tell somebody about Jesus? You ever tried to tell somebody what God means to you and what he's done for you? And it's like they understand mentally, but it, it, just, that's, it just stays there. They don't get it. They understand, but they don't get it. That's this verse being played out because the things of God are spiritually discerned. Unless you've been given a new heart, you can't understand them. Unless God is at work in your life already, it's just going to bounce off. That's why we pray for people that God would work in their lives so that when we come to them with the message of Jesus, they're able to understand it. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So you got a lot of things when you committed yourself to Jesus. When you committed yourself to Jesus, you got eternal life. When you committed yourself to Jesus, your sins were washed away. You were clean. Now, you may not feel very clean. You may not have lived very clean this week, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been cleaned already. You received that. You received the right to be called a son or a daughter of God. And you received the mind of Christ. Who can understand the mind of the Lord? The way you and I are born? Not us, but you've been given the mind of Jesus, which means you can understand God's will. It means when you don't know whether to go A or B, if you will listen and you will wait and you will be patient, you will be able to discern through the thickness of this world the voice of God because you have the mind of Christ. And what does it say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2? By the renewal of your mind or the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? It means just what it sounds like. The renew. You've been given a new mind, the mind of Christ. So if you want to be transformed, if you want something to happen to you on the inside, you keep on activating, bringing back the mind of Christ in your life means when you have to make a decision, when you're just looking at your day, when you're deciding what are you gonna do with the next hour, you put on the mind of Christ, which you've been given. It's your birthright. And as you 
Renew your mind. As you put on again what was given to you fresh and new by the Spirit of God, you will be transformed. As you commit yourself to be a student of Jesus, your mind is being made new and something powerful and something spiritual and something supernatural is happening to you. Where what we see on the outside is a real reflection of who you are on the inside. So I was thinking, you know, how, how do I connect this series we've been in, Love the Lord Your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, back to the mind? How do I wrap it all up and finish it? Well, my favorite story, I think, one of my favorite stories, I got a lot of favorite stories. My favorite story in the scripture is Luke chapter 24. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he started appearing, but he's disappeared just to a few people so far. There are these two disciples. They, they weren't in the 12, those 12, but they were kind of in that next concentric circle and they're walking from Jerusalem where everything had taken place back to their home in Emmaus, back to their village, which was about seven miles. And so they're traveling along this road. They're not the only ones traveling. A lot of people traveling on this road. It's been a big holiday back in Jerusalem. Now everybody's headed back home. And, but these two disciples, they're talking about everything that's happening. And Jesus is actually walking near them. Now they don't recognize it's, it's Jesus. Their, their mind and their eyes have been blinded to that fact. And Jesus is eavesdropping on their conversation. Isn't that kind of scary that Jesus would eavesdrop on your conversation? He does, by the way. That's just free today. That's not what we're talking about. But Jesus is eavesdropping on their conversation. And he just steps into it. He goes, tell, us, tell me what's going on. And they're like, oh man, you don't know what happened? Where have you been? Are you the only person in Jerusalem that's not been paying attention? This Jesus of Nazareth, who was this great prophet, people were following him, and we've actually thought that maybe he was going to be the Messiah. We were wrong, but we thought that he was going to be. And he actually got himself arrested, and then they convicted him, and then they crucified him. Now he's been dead three days, and some of our friends, they are saying now that he's alive. We don't know anything about that, but that's what's kind of going on. And it says that Jesus, they still don't recognize it's him, that Jesus goes with them back to the beginning, back to the creation, back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he walks them through all the scripture, showing them from the scripture that the way it had happened in that last week is exactly the way that God had intended it. And then they get finally to Emmaus, and I guess Jesus is, is acting like he's going to go on. Remember, they don't know it's him. And they're like, no, no, stay with us. We've had a great conversation. It's getting late. Just stay with us. Eat with us. And so Jesus agrees. So they go inside. They're getting ready to have dinner. And the scripture says that Jesus actually goes to, to break the bread and bless it. And when he breaks that bread, these people must have been in the room maybe at the Last Supper. Or they've been in a room when Jesus had broken the bread before. Because when he breaks the bread, their eyes are instantly open. And they recognize that they've been with Jesus this whole time. And immediately he vanishes. And they say to each other, they turn to each other. And they go, we should have known. How do we not know? We should have known. Because when he was walking with us, our hearts burned on the inside. Listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Does any of this mean anything to you? All this Jesus stuff, all this church stuff, all these songs, all this scripture, waking up every day and going through the, the routine of reading your Bible and studying it, all the prayer, does any of it mean anything to, to you? When you remember your story of how God saw you when you were in your sin, when you were living your life apart from God, when you are on the path 
of a hard and lonely heart and you remembered that God saved you and saw you right there and he picked you up and he picked me up out of the miry clay and he gave you a new start. When you remember what he's done for you, does it stir you? When you go back to those memories when you were at your worst and you received the grace of God in that moment, do you ever tear up? Does moisture ever come down the side of your cheek? Whenever we're singing and we're singing something that's resonating with your heart so deeply, do you ever feel motivated to give more than just a token melody? Does any of this mean anything to you? Does any of this make your heart burn within you? Because the good news is if it doesn't, that's okay. Give him your mind and he will stir your heart. Let's give him your mind. There's no condemnation. I can't tell you what the condition of my heart's gonna be this week. I honestly can't. I got some goals, but I can't tell you what the condition of my heart is gonna be. And if my heart is not stirred up, the answer is not to try to stir it up myself. It's to give him my mind and he will inspire my heart. If you're having a hard time loving God with your heart and your soul, disengage your mind. And I promise, I promise you by the authority of God's word, if you will give him your mind, he will take your heart and you will be glad that he did. He's given you one command, lift it up above all the others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. In Jesus' name, let's do it. Let's pray. So God, we give you our minds. We put our minds on the altar today. You've made us with brilliant capacity and our minds are gonna soak up so much this week, some intentionally, some unintentionally, God, but we offer you our minds We ask that you would inspire love inside of us just as you did those disciples on that road. God, I pray for those of us who are skeptical and just cynicism is our natural gear. God, could you meet us in that place, God? Could you be your own defense? Spirit of God, would you be the defender of Jesus? Would you be the one who advocates for faith in him today? Yeah. We are the people of God. We are students of Jesus. Make it true. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand to your feet.